This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We know we are expected to hear from President Biden in a little bit, uh, about a couple of hours, less than two hours, actually, uh, and that his goal is that all American adults to be eligible for a coronavirus vaccine by April 19, two weeks earlier than he previous uh, than his previous goal. Uh, he's on a mission, Tim. Yeah, he is. Uh, the president will also announce that 150 million doses of vaccine were administered within his first 75 days in office. That's keeping pace with his accelerated goal of getting 200 million shots into arms by his 100th day in the office. Uh, Earlier in the show, just a few minutes ago, I said that it was 175 million. Got my numbers mixed up there. But we know that he's expected to announce 150 million doses. Ahead of schedule. That's uh, yeah. kind of where he's at. Hey, let's get into it with Dr. William um, Hazeltine. He is chairman and president of Access Health International. It's a nonprofit think tank. It's on a mission as well to improve access to high quality and affordable health care for people everywhere. He's uh, also got several books out, including a new one called Variants the shape-shifting challenge of COVID-19. He joins us on the phone uh, on this Tuesday, joining us from Connecticut. Dr. Hazeltine, uh, so nice to have you back with us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a beautiful day here. It is, too, here in New York, and it feels good. It feels like spring. It feels like we're making progress. How do you see it as you see the vaccine rollout, specifically here in the United States? It's a uh, very complicated picture in the United States. Some places are doing extremely well. Other places are doing badly. Some places the variants are surging. In other places, they're almost not detectable. Uh, and it's complicated with the vaccines because some places where the vaccine, the, the disease is surging, for example, Michigan, have a pretty good vaccine record. So it's a very complicated picture. And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of hope. But there's some cause for concern. So why do you think that's happening in, in places like Michigan right now that are actually doing relatively well when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine, but still seeing surges? I think that it's still pretty cold up there, not like it is down mm-hmm. here. And uh, people are going, staying inside, and they're not following the same uh, careful behavior they did before. One thing we now know is that restaurants and bars are really dangerous because you're with a lot of people and you don't have your mask on. If you're drinking, you can't drink through your mask. You can't eat through your mask. And so it's not so much being outside in crowds, it's being inside. And I think that's what could be driving it. Now, that isn't the only thing that drives it, because we were all surprised last summer when we saw this enormous bump in the summer, which came from people mixing. But then when it gets too hot, people stay inside to stay cool. So it's really our gregarious nature trying to get together loving to be together, sharing food, sharing conversation, which is a big problem for this uh, disease. We know a lot more about transmission than we did before. It really is transmitted by aerosols, small particles uh, that hang in the air sometimes for quite a while. And these new variants, some of them are much more infectious. So uh, a lot more particles are in the air, and each one of those particles is more likely to cause contagion. So those are all factors 
But the vaccines are the positive side, and uh, it's, as I say, quite a mixed picture right now. Listen, we love talking to you. You know, you founded Human Genome Sciences. You were founder of Harvard Medical School's HIV and AIDS research departments. You understand this world better than most. And so do you foresee, Dr. Hazeltine, that we get to a point where it's just like the flu and we take a vaccine and we go on our merry way? Or is this something different? Well, it, in one sense, it's going to be, I think, like the flu, where every year or every year and a half we take another shot that accounts for variants that are coming from somewhere, either our country or elsewhere. Uh, but in another sense, it's not like the flu because from the get-go, it's been pretty dangerous. Uh, one in 200 people have died. Some of these variants do a couple of things that are disturbing. They uh, kill maybe twice as many people as they did before. They kill younger people than they did before. Uh, And that's pretty worrisome. Uh, They're also, as I pointed out, more transmissible and evade our vaccines. So I think we may reach a steady state, uh, but I hope it's a steady state lower than it is with flu, that in a good year kills 20,000 of us, a bad year kills 60,000 of us. It could be a lot worse. So we need to do better. There is hope, though, because there are drugs coming along now. Mm-hmm. that if you think you've been exposed, you'll be able, I think, in the future, maybe within a year or shorter, to take a pill and prevent yourself from getting infected. People should know mm. that there's now a pill like that for flu, that if you've been exposed to the flu, there's a pill called Zofluza that you can take and dramatically reduce your chance. So if you're in school or your kid comes home with the flu, the real flu, uh, that uh, you can uh, reduce your chances of getting it, and I hope... Uh, that within the relatively near future we'll have drugs like that for COVID too. Tim and I are both jumping because we have a million questions for you. Just one quick one because then we have to take a break, but in 40 seconds. So then, you know, we're finding out Moderna or Pfizer, how long they these vaccines keep working. But, you know, I think there was a headline earlier, Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine keeps working past six months. I mean, knowing this is really crucial right now to understand how safe we're going to be kept, at least for the time being, and just got about 30 seconds. Well, it it is uh, very good news that those two vaccines you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, seem to be very effective at six months and maybe even nine months. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us expect them to be effective as long as the polio vaccines for many years. But that is very good news. Now, depending what vaccine you get, you'll have a different length of time for protecting. The best so far is Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, But uh, they all are helping. Let's get right back to Dr. William Hazeltine, chairman and president of Access Health International, also the author, among many other things, of My Lifelong Fight Against Disease, From Polio and AIDS to COVID-19. He joins us now again on the phone from Connecticut. Dr. Hazeltine, you said something before the break that I wanted to make sure I understood. It was with regard to variants and vaccine. We continue to get news about the durability of this vaccine and also how it does in the face of variants so far is have you seen anything that raises any red flags about the mutations of the virus being able to get past these vaccines that are available for emergency use authorization now uh you asked the question in a very specific way so i'll give you a specific answer the astrazeneca vaccine was 10 percent effective against the south african uh, variant in south africa in a real test 10%. That means 90% of the time it didn't work. Other vaccines have been much more successful against other variants, including the South African variant. I think if you really look at it, it depends upon 
how good the initial response is. If the initial response is very strong, it will last longer and protect against more variants. Over time, it will decrease both in its protection against the original variant and increase, decrease a little bit faster against the other variants. Now, not all variants are created equally. Some are more resistant to neutralization or protection than are others. So, and every day goes on, we see new variants. Just yesterday, there were new variants reported out of California that may have originated in India. So it's a very complicated picture. I think that means that even uh, if we don't have new vaccines, it's likely will be boosted within the next year to 18 months. Everybody will be suggested to be boosted to protect ourselves against these, make sure we have the highest possible antibody protection that is achievable. And so I understand this correctly, that, Dr. Hasseltine, as these variants come, as long as we just keep tweaking the existing vaccines, that they will be able to be tweaked pretty quickly so that we can keep up with the variants. Is that correct in my very low-tech, low-science explanation? Up to a point. Think of flu. We get a flu vaccine every year against variants of flu. It isn't 100% protective, but it is good, and it protects both against getting infected and, more importantly, getting sick. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us care about, you know, we, we can put up with a cold. We can't put up with being hospitalized. And so it's very likely that we'll be able to keep abreast of this uh, infection and the variants. But we'll have to keep on our toes, and we have to be prepared for some nasty variant to come along that we're going to have to respond to very quickly, but which we're not prepared. It's going to be a very complex future. So does that does that mean that we are going to have some sort of permanent infrastructure in place to rapidly deploy shots to large numbers of people? It does. Uh, I think that's a very good conclusion, but I'll give you one ray of hope, and that is there are some Please. good generation <laughs> vaccines that have been developed that might be protective against many, many variants, not just a few. So the third generation of vaccines that are currently in early stages of test may give us some hope. If we combine that with the antiviral drugs, we may be have a solution to continue life nearly as normal. And at the same time, since this is your world and you are, and you are in touch with these networks of individuals and institutions, we need to be also, though, getting ready for the next virus, right? We've already, you know, there's those virus hunters out there that have identified them that if we start working on kind of preliminary vaccines, we'll be in much better shape. We need to be thinking about that and just got about 40 seconds. I I think one of the long-term benefits of this disaster that's befallen us is we all know that it's not just a matter of lives that are lost, it's economies that are lost too. Mm -hmm. And that means there's everybody got to pull behind trying to understand how to prevent this from ever happening again. You know, a lot of us have been crying in the dark that we have to be prepared, not being listened to. I think from now on, we're going to be listened to a lot more, and we will be prepared more than we were this time. Fingers crossed on that. Elbows crossed. Everything crossed on that, because I would like to be, I think the whole world hopes to be better prepared. Um, Dr. Hazeltine, thank you so much. You always find time for us, and we really appreciate it. Dr. William Hazeltine, Chairman, President of Access Health International. He founded Human Genome Sciences. He's got several books out, including My Lifelong Fight Against Disease, and he's got a new book out that's about variants, the shape-shifting challenge of COVID-19, joining us once again here from Connecticut. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, someone we like to turn to on everything from trade and politics to Wall Street deal making and more is Stefan Selig. He is managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, chairman of Rotor. He's former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce. That was during the Obama administration. He is back with us on the phone from Long Island. Uh, Stefan, so nice to have you here with uh, Tim and myself. How are you? Uh, Great, Carol. Thanks for having me back. So you've been busy. Uh, Got to talk to you about a story on the Bloomberg today about Sarcos Robotics uh, planning to go public through a reverse merger with uh, a blank check company. I think you're familiar with it, Rotor. Uh, you're chairman of Rotor. Why? Uh, tell us about this and why Sarcos. So um, Rotor Acquisition is a company that uh, we formed at the beginning of the year. I have two partners, Brian Finn, who's the former president of Credit Suisse in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, who I've known since 1984, and John Howard, who's a storied private equity investor, uh, was the CEO and founder of the merchant banking business at Bear Stearns, and we raised $276 million uh, to do a deal um, where in, for a company that was going to be positively impacted by innovation and technology to transform what historically had been an old economy business. And we identified Sarcos Robotics, which is a leader in highly dexterous mobile industrial robotic systems that um, uh, enables the workforce of the future with solutions that enhance productivity and reduce operational injuries and equalize employment opportunities for jobs around the world that do not otherwise lend themselves to automation. So we are extraordinarily excited about this opportunity um, uh, and to present it to our shareholders. In, I mean, I'm looking at a picture of the Sarcos Robotics Guardian Exo Exoskeleton, and it looks like an exoskeleton, like something out of a superhero movie. Or I mean, aliens. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, this is something that is yeah, designed cool. to, to help people lift heavy objects, right? Uh, y- yes. Um, what's important, Tim, is it's not designed to replace humans, like a number of the robots you see in in automotive factories and in other applications, but rather to augment humans. And as a result of that, um, the technology has been um, uh, extraordinarily well received by um, commercial and military customers uh, alike for some of the reasons I suggested. What is the process of identifying a company like Sarcos Robotics when you have this criteria that you use for identifying the type of company that you want to acquire through a SPAC? Well, you know, um, we came together, the three of us, um, with a hundred years of Wall Street experience and um, uh, broad and deep relationships. And um, one of those relationships um, with two of my partners was with Sarcos. And frankly, we think that's what differentiates some of the SPAC sponsors from others as this capital markets tool has continued to evolve. Um, and frankly, um, what we think differentiates us um, is not only our ability to um, uh, negotiate attractive acquisitions, um, but to identify um, proprietary opportunities based on that network. Well, and I, and I guess, you know, the question is, because, and we'll talk a little bit more broadly about SPACs, um, Stefan, but did you guys think about a lot of other companies or look at a lot of other companies, or I'm just curious about the process? Yeah, well, um, Sarcos had engaged two financial advisors to run a process, which Mm. roughly coincide with when our uh, SPAC was raised. So we were kind of thrown into the soup, so to speak. 
um, early um, uh, in um, uh, in our time frame for identifying a target. So um, we had the opportunity to look at um, a number of opportunities. Um, uh, but once the Sarco opportunity became actionable um, because of their own deliberations and process that their board decided on, we frankly jumped on it. This is, I'm just looking at pictures of, of the, what's available on the market for this. Um, just talk briefly about the, the go-to-market strategy with, with how you're thinking about getting this to companies. It seems like right now the, the cost is really high. You're going to lease it, or the company, I should say, Sarcos Robotics will lease it for $100,000 a year, uh, and then eventually the cost is, is, going, is expected to get lower. Yeah, I mean, the cost to manufacture will go down dramatically as we start to get to scale. The costs that you're referring to, Tim, now are high only because we're in the kind of alpha and beta um, production stages. So we're doing that ourselves as opposed to the, the global contract manufacturers that we will utilize um, once we get to scale. But um, uh, your intuition is actually the opposite of what um, we believe to be the case, which is this will make um, uh, production and manufacturing and um, uh, decrease costs for our cons- for our customers because it will allow one worker to do what two, three, or four workers can do without this um, uh, without this technology. So just think about it. Um, a normal worker guidelines are you shouldn't be listening lifting stuff that's more than thirty pounds, and when you have to lift something that's more more than thirty pounds, that means you need two, three, or four workers. We're here. Um, you can use the exoskeleton, can lift up to 200 pounds, and frankly feel like you're lifting just five pounds. Um, and as a result of that, um, the cost benefits to um, uh, the cost benefits to our potential customers are significant. Let alone the benefits around um, worker safety. Um, the amount of productivity that is lost in the global economy because of workplace injuries are just extraordinary. I do also wonder, too, um, Stefan, if it allows older workers to, you know, maybe take a job that they wouldn't normally be able to because they're able to tap into this kind of equipment. And just got about 30, 40 seconds, then we'll come back and talk some more. So that's exactly right, Carol. And it's not older workers taking these jobs as much as workers being able to stay on their mm-hmm. jobs and not actually age out because of the wear and tear that um, uh, their bodies will take in some of these more demanding jobs let alone having younger people who are going to be attracted to these jobs because, frankly, they're less dangerous and more interesting and more fun um, rather than just sitting in front of a, a, a screen. I want to get right back to Stefan Selig. He is managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, chairman of Rotor, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the uh, Commerce Department during the Obama administration, still with us on the phone in Long Island. Hey, just one more question on Sarcos, um, Stefan. I do wonder how much of the business going forward will be reliant on government contracts? Uh, it's a great question, um, uh, Carol. We have uh, very strong relationships with the U.S. military. Um, however, all of our projections that um, we have shared with investors are 100% dependent on uh, commercial uh, relationships um, and not dependent on government contracts because, frankly, government contracts are, are far less certain um, uh, and subject to uh, much more variability. And so we really built a business plan around commercial applications, although we think there is going to be tons of uh, military and other government uses for the products. 
Well, look forward to hearing more in the future, too, as you guys um, continue along. I do have one bigger, broader question, Stefan, when it comes to SPACs. There are so many out there. There's a lot um, that haven't put any money to work or trading for less than the cash that they raised uh, in their public offerings. Do you think, ultimately, that there will be many of these SPACs that go nowhere that will ultimately be liquidated? Um, you know, look, Carol, I think that's hard to say on the one hand. On the other hand, I think for sure you're going to see a continued evolution and maturation in the SPAC market um, with, you know, more accomplished, more experienced sponsors replacing, frankly, those folks that have been more entrepreneurial historically and, frankly, a better set of underwriters um, that are using, would use more stringent standards uh, to select sponsors to raise this capital. I think you've seen that in all kind of capital markets innovations over the years, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that happening with SPACs on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't think this capital markets tool is going to go away, mm-hmm. and I think it will have a permanent place in um, the landscape for companies looking to companies at a certain stage of their lifestyle looking to raise external capital. Hey, Stefan, I want to talk trade with you because, of course, you were former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade or are former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. We are still in a trade war with China right now. I think a a lot of people forget that. Um, How do we get past this and into the what is the sort of next relationship or phase of the relationship with China look like? You know, I'm not sure, Tim, we do get past it. Um, hmm. uh, I remember telling Carol, um, you know, a few months ago that, you know, it's almost kind of like we're in a challenged marriage with China and we're kind of forced to live together because of the kids. And I think, frankly, that continues to be the analogy. And our relations, you know, I think are going to continue to remain um, fraught. Um, the tone may change or will change under the Biden administration and clearly will be less belligerent. I think clearly as a tactical matter, we're likely to coordinate much more with our friends and allies. But I don't think the fundamental underpinning of these tensions is going to go away anytime soon. So let me ask you, I love that. I do remember that. I think it made us chuckle when you said it, but this whole idea of being forced to live live together because of the kids. Who's going to have the better house, China or the United States? (laughs) I ask that because of the infrastructure spend that President Biden is now trying to do. Stefan, we had a great conversation with our Andy Brown of Bloomberg New Economy that the whole idea of you can't fight you know, the way we used to fight with our, with maybe our foes, that modern weapon, weaponry now is really about um, improving, you know, your economy. That's how you fight kind of in the, in the strongest way. And doing that is by building up your infrastructure. So I wonder your thoughts on that. So I, I guess, Carol, I'd make there was two points to that interesting question. The first is, which side do you want to take? And mm. frankly, I don't want to um, uh, sound Pollyannish, but you know, you have to bet on the U.S. We have the strongest economy, the most innovative economy. We have rule of law. We have the broadest and deepest capital markets. We are energy self-sufficient. We have um, an extraordinary workforce. We have the best secondary education, university education system in the world. And, you know, those are all things that are the envy of the world. As I went around, not just as under undersecretary, but as a banker for many years, mm-hmm. people want to do business with American companies and want to do business in America. And that's not going to change. Um, uh, that's not going to change anytime soon. To your second point about security, um, uh, and this is something that is highly topical because there are, there is a lot of conversation about whether or not we should separate trade issues 
from broader security and, and uh, human rights issues, and a number of leading companies have suggested uh, that we should. I take the exact opposite view, because mm-hmm. I believe economic security is national security, to your point, which is, which is the stronger our economy, the stronger our workforce, the better positioned we are going to be to advance our national interests broadly. Okay, so very briefly, we might be the envy of the world, as you, as you found when you were traveling, but we still have two political parties that basically cannot agree on anything. So how does anything happen when it comes to infrastructure if Republicans are unwilling to, to budge? And Democrats, it seems to be the same. And Stefan, don't kill us, but you got like 30 seconds. You know, well, that's, that gives me a lot of time to answer that. Uh, <laughs> Come on, sorry. solve it in Thank 30 you, seconds. <laughs> you know, look, um, you know, how we get from here to there is hard. I think both sides, there is a recognition that we have wildly underspent in terms of infrastructure. Uh, the question is going to be, how do we define what that infrastructure spending is for and how much it is for? And importantly, what's going to be the pay for and the tax policy implications which, you know, have been all over the press for the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Stefan, I always come in with a list of things I want to talk with you because I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much. Be well and stay safe. Stefan Selig at Bridge Park Advisors. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.